Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuele Tini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. So welcome to another episode. And today we are going to discuss result-based financing. What is it and how this can unlock and support transformation and our journey to sustainability. And we do it with an expert. We do it with a senior associate at Instilio who is pioneered the approach, Melissa Kaminter. Melissa, thank you so much for being here with us. And I hope I pronounced correctly your uh, surname. Absolutely. You did very well. Thank you so much, Samuel. It's a pleasure to be here today. Melissa, you are an expert in finance and we want really to understand a bit more. But for our listener and for us, who is Melissa? What is your sustainability journey? In terms of my sustainability journey, I started as a disillusioned human rights lawyer coming from the cold streets of London by way of Switzerland, ended up in Kenya 12 years ago, full of aspirations for what the human rights field could do to really deliver impact for those most left out of the system. And quite rapidly, I was only meant to be in Kenya for three to six months. Um, And within that time, I became quite disillusioned in the space. This was about 2011, 2012, thereabouts. And Kenya at the time was involved in a very high profile uh, case at the International Criminal Court, where some prominent politicians were on trial. And so I had a written blog post that got picked up as an article and circulated the internet looking at gender-based violence as a, a strategy um, during conflict. It was really just a personal piece that I wrote. Um, and I was sitting in my office. At the time, I was um, working in monitoring and evaluation for a Kenyan-based consultancy firm here called Kimetrica. And I got a call from the Netherlands. And when I picked up, it was the office of the prosecution from the ICC uh, asking if I would testify as part of the criminal case because they had found my article. Even though I was not in Kenya at the time, the case was time of the atrocities that the case was investigating, which is 2007 and 2008, the political violence. I had written the article that had nothing to do with Kenya. It was just very theoretical. But they were really trying to look for people to participate in this case. And I had to tell them, you know, and really apologize to say, I was not here. I am nowhere near an expert. I I cannot speak to this case. I'm so sorry. Um, And then I went home and I really had to think for a while about how the human rights world works, um, especially because that had really been my goal. And I then decided not to pursue my studies to become a human rights lawyer and practice and to instead dedicate my career to understanding impact, understanding social impact, how to measure it, how to achieve it, how to design for it, and how to ensure that programs that exist are able to scale. So after 
realizing that the human rights um, legal world was not the path I wanted to follow. I then dedicated myself to working in social enterprises, largely in Kenya. I also lived in Zambia for a couple of years and spent extended periods of time in Tanzania, Uganda, Ivory Coast, uh, Cameroon, Myanmar, um, and worked basically throughout East, uh, West, South, and, and, and Central Africa. And then, yeah, that brought me to Instiglio, where I have now dedicated my career to understanding uh, how development financing can be used more effectively by tying it to results and impact. You have found that sometimes human rights area was not your cup of tea to use it, and then now you went to the impact and how to use it. And you mentioned your role in Instilio. So for the people that are not really familiar with it, what is the mission and objectives of the organization? Our vision is a transformed development ecosystem that ensures that every dollar of public funding and development spending achieves the greatest and most equitable impact possible. So our mission is to transform the way that development funders, with a focus on governments in low to middle income countries and also multilateral development um, aid agencies, to transform the way that they disperse their funding and to really transform them into effective institutions that can deliver radically enhanced social and environmental outcomes. So that's really what we do. And one of the key concepts that you are fostering and working and you have published book and discussion is result-based financing, which is usually, sometimes we know result-based management, we use in, the, in some terms. So financing sometimes is a term that might be new. So how does this concept is different from the conventional funding mechanism? And why do you think it is important for social impact? The clue is in the name for results-based financing. (laughs) And so what it does is it ties funding, so development aid, to outcomes and to objectives that are verified, as opposed to paying for what projects cost. So Instead of paying for um, budgets and for plans, it really and for strategies, it really tries to tie as much funding as possible. The reason why that's really important is because despite the magnitude of funding that's currently being distributed, global development efforts are falling short of the impact that they're meant to deliver. So just last month, I think it was the UN that came out with a report on the sustainable development goals. And they regrettably found and stated that about 80% of the goals, either progress against Against them is weak, stalled, or in fact has gone into reverse. So this is really the challenge that we're facing right now. And a root cause of this problem is that major development funders, which include governments, as I mentioned, bilateral and multilateral aid institutions, are not adequately incentivized to measure, manage, and maximize the cost effectiveness of their funding, and then therefore the impact of their funding. As a result, few of these large-scale funders, really the individuals and the um, and the organizations with the power to have an impact, very few of them make the evidence-based decisions that are required to increase their impact. So what we're trying to do through results-based financing is to make funding conditional on outcomes. And this triggers a number of really interesting changes in the way that programs are designed and structured. For instance, the first thing that it does is it focuses the attention of both funders and implementers on results. So instead of focusing on the method of how something is going to be achieved, 
Results-based financing says, we don't really care how you get there, just get there. And so this focus on results then, of course, also means that the results have to be verified, that there has to be high quality data. This is really important for the sustainability sector in particular, for instance, because of its emphasis on monitoring, reporting and verification systems that are really needed for the carbon markets, for instance, or to confirm that there are reductions in emissions that are taking place. So by re calibrating and by re-engineering the way that development funding is being structured and tying it to results, people now say, okay, we have to be really clear about the results that we're doing. So that's one of the main objectives and the main benefits of RBF. Another key benefit is the flexibility that it provides to service providers, where by saying we're tying your funding to results, not to your budget line items, results-based financing provides the flexibility for service providers to be able to innovate, to be able to change their programs according to needs on the ground as they rapidly evolve. Because it doesn't matter how many trainings you're giving, how many cups of tea, how many pens you are buying for your workshops, you know, all these line items that would normally go into a budget. We're saying we don't care how to get there. What we're going to do instead is we are going to price the value of an outcome. And we are going to pay you according to how that outcome is valued. And of course, there it gets really tricky. How do we measure outcomes? How do we measure emissions and the social environmental impact of those reductions, um, etc.? That really gets into the, the technicality and the fun of what we do. But yeah, I think for now, let me just pause there and say that, you know, two of the major elements of RBF and, and the benefit that it brings for impact is focusing on results, introducing the flexibility. And essentially what that then means is it aligns the motivational systems for the actors with the outcomes, making sure that within a whole chain of actions to results and outcomes, um, each player, each actor is aligned in their actions and in their objectives with the strategic overall goal of what is trying to be achieved. It's really interesting, and I want to go a bit deeper to understand it more, because sometimes, and also being involved in budgeting, even to the cost of a single training and a single, as you say, pen or pencil, uh, it's a really interesting perspective. And I want to ask, the first question is, usually learning by example and success stories in cases easy to showcase. So would you be able to share a success story or now this you have implemented this framework first i'm going to tell you about a partnership that instiglio has had with the government of colombia since 2012 um, and the extremely compelling results uh, and impact that's generated and then after that because that speaks more to the employment um, sector then i want to take a look at uh, how that's being applied to the sustainability um, space and to talk a little bit about what we're doing with climate finance now, which is a whole new area and rapidly growing. So just to first give you a sense of the type of scale that's possible, in 2012, Instiglio, with the support of the IDB Lab, which is an initiative founded by the Swiss State Secretariat, they launched a program to 
try and improve the extremely high rates of both poverty and inequality in Colombia, which has some of the highest rates of inequality in the world, at least it did back in 2012. And so the Colombian ecosystem, so the whole political system, was characterized and plagued by real lack of accountability. There was poor data and it was very difficult to understand both the cost of services that the government was trying to provide in terms of poverty eradication and then also the type of impact. So it was a very low data environment extremely low accountability. And so Instiglio came in and designed seven different outcomes funds focused on employment, essentially saying, and each of those had a little bit of a different design, but taking some of the funding um, like bonuses and saying, okay, we're going to incentivize the government by tying financial and other incentives to the achievement of certain employment focused outcomes related to the quality of jobs, related to uh, job retention, related to recidivism, um, so the amount of people who were cycling in and out of unemployment. And so we worked for a while to design and implement these outcome funds. And then essentially, in terms of the impact, here are some of the things that were accomplished. 35,000 job placements. Um, over $7 million were channeled into these different outcomes funds, building and encouraging uh, more investment in the employment space. In addition, an entire network of stakeholders involved in poverty eradication was formed, all interested in implementing various forms of results-based financing. Um, this network consisted of six different government officers, from mayors to different finance and budgeting committees, 14 different private investors, eight different donors, 20 different service providers, all came together to form a network to say, okay, we're very interested in seeing how our results-based um, financing can continue to deliver impact for our country. And then the other thing that then resulted is that RBF was incorporated into the National Development Plan, um, two different National Development Plans for one little project, which generated uh, all of these uh, job placements and succeeded in bringing down the poverty and inequality rates, could then be embedded within the whole um, national um, planning uh, system and approach. Um, the government of Colombia continues to be a very strong partner of ours. They are a global leader um, in results-based financing, which they have now deployed across a range of different sectors. It's an example of partnering with a national government, which is often very difficult to do, that has actually led to sustained impact and where we have been able to scale back our technical support as the government has been able to introduce sustaining strategies to now embed and inculcate this culture of performance uh, within the government. Fantastic. And the second bit is the private sector and the, the space of finance, especially in the carbon space. So I'm curious also to learn a bit more about that. The need for climate finance you know, is clearly extremely high. There is a massive funding shortfall and therefore a lot of interest in how to both scale, so to increase the amount of uh, financing, but then also make sure that that financing is effective, that it's really generating some good sustainable impact. So there are three examples of results-based financing facilities involving a combination of private and 
uh, public sector funders. Um, I think uh, probably the most well-known of all of them is the Red Plus uh, scheme, which of course provides incentives for reduced emissions. There are over 65 countries, I believe, that are um, part of Red Plus now, and that shows how compelling and interesting some of these outcomes-based uh, facilities can be. Another one that I, that is you know similar to that in the sense that it's focused on um, verified emission reductions is the Transformative Carbon Asset Facility. So an initiative by the World Bank. And they have dedicated, I think it's about $100 million of funding specifically for incentives to try and raise ambitions for verified emission reductions. And then there's another one, which is an initiative of the UN, but it is also encompassing. There are private investors, I believe, that are also involved. And that's Sustainable Energy for All initiative. Um, So in that case, it's a $500 million fund um, providing incentives for the deployment of a clean and sustainable energy solutions. So those are three examples of funds that, although they're largely being um, spearheaded by the public sector, they provide uh, interesting models and examples um, for the private sector as well. With the private sector angle, um, is we have been providing technical support to the UK government's Department of Energy Security and Net Zero on the design of a new fund that they're in the process of launching called the Clean Innovation Pool Facility, which is looking to scale the innovation and adoption of clean technologies while also creating and introducing a market shaping elements to the climate financing world as well. Um, And the reason why this is really interesting for private investors is that instead of just relying on traditional, what is called push financing, where the costs of innovation are reduced through, you know, provision of subsidies, for instance, or tax breaks or grants, this is now where different forms of market shaping pull finance mechanisms are used on the demand side of clean technology to try and overcome or eradicate the market inequalities that prevent a lot of these clean technologies from forming. So an example that we've been working with a lot and developing is the type of vehicle called an advanced market commitment, which has been used by the private sector, and it's been used by governments as well. But it's essentially where demand for a certain innovation, it's been used a lot in the health space, for instance, it's how the COVID vaccine, for instance, was created. It's also how the pneumococcal, so the pneumonia vaccine was also created. It's where investors come together and they say, we don't care what the output looks like, but we are going to pay you if you are able to create a solution that can solve a problem for us. And we are going to guarantee a certain amount of market, a certain volume of purchases Um, And so now um, innovators, now that that sort of demand uh, risk um, has been accounted for, they can now really invest in coming up with new innovations. Um, How this approach often used in health space can apply to the technology space. Um, And we're really looking at that uh, with EVs at the moment, so electric vehicles. It's a really interesting perspective. And I want now to go a bit deeper. You have said that you work now with private sector, you're working with the organization, government. But usually we know that change 
is difficult. Organizational change is one of the models that sometimes is one of also the most difficult. How to change procedures and way of thinking and work. New financing, your new model, the results-based approach can be a difficult. So what are those the organization usually encounter when transitioning from a, let us say, traditional uh, financing model to this result-based financing model and how you are guiding them in overcome those hurdles. The element of our work which gives us the most frustration day in and day out and that is change management especially at the scale which we are trying to achieve that change and um, with the partners. So at the heart of our strategy is to go to governments um, and governments are very challenging to try and move uh, quickly and to try and move in very like systematic and comprehensive ways. And so indeed, some of the challenges that our partnerships and some of these um, implementing partners will face is, first of all, political will. There are often interests that are not always aligned with increased transparency and a focus on results, because it means that now the individual roles and the actions uh, are suddenly going to be put under the microscope and things are going to have to change and people can be very uncomfortable with that. So first of all, it's the willingness. It's really that political support. A second challenge is results-based financing requires quite strong data systems. Um, So some of these things that we're talking about, so it's the political will, those embedded interests, the robust uh, data collection, monitoring, reporting, verification systems, the performance management systems, all of these are elements we call enabling conditions. So these are conditions that enable funders um, and implementers to, first of all, be able to price the value of an outcome. It's hard to do that when you don't have the historical data. It's also hard to do that when you don't know the cost that it's going to take to achieve uh, if there haven't been proper record keeping. Um, It's hard to really know the scale. And crucially, it becomes very difficult to know whether a program is on track to achieving the outcomes. Strong performance management systems are required for that, including the culture of caring about performance and reporting on performance. So I think those are really the main challenges we face. It's the data systems, the political will, and the performance cultures that that often exist. Thank you for the very honest and uh, clear explanation. Sometimes, you know, uh, change, even though results on the other side of the fence, uh, they might be wonderful, of course, just jumping the fence might be difficult. There another sometimes thorny issue that I also found, uh, maybe at a, a low, much lower scale than yours, is how you balance the aspiration, especially of community, especially on this side of the world. When projects come, uh, work comes, there is a lot of expectation. People expect a lot from projects. So how you manage that? Uh, the objective of stakeholders, sometimes legitimate and other, with managing the project towards achieving the outcomes that they are there. It certainly is a challenge and alignment is front and center of our approach. In fact, the raison d'etre or the philosophy behind RBF starts from the principle of alignment. And so the way that we do that is by mapping the hidden incentives, the hidden 
agendas and the motivations. We develop a theory of change for a program, for a policy, for regulation, for an approach, and spend a lot of time on our diagnostic in the technical assistance that we provide to understand essentially two questions. Who stands to win in this program? Who is it benefiting? Second question, and probably the more important one, who is going to lose something in this? And it's always there. It's always in that analysis and in that investigation of who a certain loser in a policy or in a change or in a reform is that we then hone in on to say, okay, what are their motivations? What are their drives? What is blocking them? How can we turn a potential obstacle into a supporter and an agent of reform? And so we really start at the heart of the question of alignment um, to understand what the forces are that are in favor and against a policy, and then to try and understand what do we need to build in? What type of incentive models or information flows? Or is it resource and knowledge gaps that we need to provide? Or is it support? Um, is it networks? What is it that's needed in order to turn these uh, critical moments and these agents uh, within the value chain into agents of support for the reforms? And not an easy one, especially we know that multi Motivation and stride can also entrench people and huge fights. Even in organization, we know politics sometimes even in organization and even smaller organization can be a stumbling block on, on any change. Yeah, absolutely. And so aligning those, you know, mapping them out clearly in advance and seeing where where does the service of one actor intersect with the service of another actor? And then how can we get those two to speak the same language? Or if not, to be aligned towards the same outcomes? What does that look like? That is our bread and butter. That's essentially what we do. Fantastic. The other question is like, how do you build partnership, especially in this part of the world, in emerging markets and frontier markets, is not always easy. It's, a, it's also a bit part of the politics of the work. How you can bring on board, not only you, how you can scale your impact and which is your strategy on that and of course the challenges in doing that because of course also donors and others they might be jealous of their own garden rather than bringing on board towards a pooled area to add another element to your question as well not only is there a challenge of how to build the partnership it's then how do you do it in a way that's financially viable for your business company consulting firm ngo <laughs> There are a couple of different approaches that we use. I'll speak about three of them. So the first one is go to where the money is. The second one is then working with governments. We try to understand who or where is the best entry point that has an ability to introduce a reform. So what we've often found in emerging markets, uh, Kenya being a good example, is that's often at the subnational level, especially, of course, this is facilitated in environments where the devolution process is quite advanced uh, and, and supportive of such approaches. But we often work at the subnational level. I'm looking at 
at mechanisms like performance-based grants and transfers that the national government can then be more of like an administrator, but where it's the subnational, so local governments um, who are implementing a lot of the work. It's often at that level too, where they're most beholden to their constituencies, where they're closest to the impact and where there's very strong feedback loops between what they are implementing, the services that are being implemented and the satisfaction and the impact on the constituency or on the public. So we really like to work at the subnational level. That's been helpful for us um, in developing these government partnerships. And then the third element speaks to network building. But we try and find champions, government effectiveness or public spending champions who are embedded in prominent places of power or authority or influence and approached through the champion by making sure that they have the resources, the evidence, the technical support, the networks and the guidelines and handbooks um, that they need in order to create change from within, which is always going to be easier to do than coming from outside. This is also, I think, change and politics 101 for any organization. Another thing that is important is you are now in the emerging markets. And of course, uh, we have been to the climate summit. We have been to African summit. Everybody is discussing about this new frontier that will uh, grow 200 million people in the next 10 years, not even 10 years, 2030. From your vast experience, government, private sector and others, which insight and advice you can give, especially to businesses that they want to initiate on work? in these areas? I would say what's been helping me in this journey is to always look for the homegrown solutions, to look for the locally led, locally inspired innovations. And I think, you know, looking at uh, Kenya in particular, there are a number of expats. I am one myself. I do not exclude myself from that category. I'm very aware of it. Um, who come with uh, ideas and conventions, um, norms and expectations and standards from other places, thinking it can be applied here. And that doesn't always work. The best innovations uh, locally um, homegrown. And I don't think there is anything groundbreaking <laughs> in that advice, but I think um, remembering to always stay humble, to listen, to be a continuous learner, to continuously ask the question why. I think perhaps some of the best management consulting advice uh, I ever received was the five why approach of always asking why five times until you get to the root of the challenge, root of a problem, and then building up from there. I would love to hear from anyone who listens to this podcast uh, how those principles serve them as well. And it's really a wonderful piece of advice, often overlooked. We all study in the first modules the five whys and all the other uh, techniques, but sometimes we forget about them. And really, I want to ask now a question that is a bit forward-looking. How do we envision a result-based financing in the next five to 10 years? Do you see this approach becoming mainstream? Do you become it is being picked up by donors or it will remain for some, a niche in some areas? Results-based financing is by no means a panacea. However, it is becoming more and more a necessity. And I see it growing in all types of different ways as 
public spending, coffers of governments and multilateral development finance institutions continue to be stretched as the world continues to experience greater scales of climate and humanitarian shocks. This emphasis and this focus on outcomes and effectiveness is only going to increase. The different approaches of how one gets there, of course, RBF is only one approach. And I think it's going to continue to be a very useful support system and an approach. But overall, I see it's growing and I see more uh, governments and I see more financiers and more funders being really interested in the type of reforms that can be encouraged through an increased focus on results and outcomes. And fantastic. And I think also the cross-pollination between the different actors, local, international, and other, will help also, you know, going forward in this direction, more results-based. Of course, I will not see they will be walking the park and sometimes blocks and problems will be there because there are people losing and winning in the area. You have given us a wonderful insights and words. So we want to tap on your wisdom once more. And can you give which sort of advice you can give to our listeners? This applies at both an individual level, but then also an organizational level too. And that is harvest your failures for your impact and for your results. One of the major challenges of working in results-based financing is embedding and cultivating this performance-based culture because there's a lack of willingness to self-reflect, look at the data, collect the data, and course correct. If more of us did that on an individual level, <laughs> and then also within businesses and institutions, I think we would already be a lot further than we are already. So to not be afraid of the failure, to seek friendship in failure, and to harvest it for success. Fantastic piece of advice. Often overlooked and sometimes put under the rug because, you know, failure is blame and people it really needs also a cultural a change even in our organization works and really but it's really important and i think that is can be a wonderful piece of advice if only i can pick that one because it's often overlooked and it will make you go very far so thank you so much melissa it's been a pleasure and honor hosting you thank you so much it's been such a pleasure having this wide-ranging conversation with you thank you so much samuel are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.